I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with David Wong. David is a security engineer working on the Libra blockchain. He's an active contributor to the internet standards like transport layer security and to the applied cryptography research community. David is a recognized authority in the field of applied cryptography. He's spoken at large security conferences like Black Hat and DEF CON and has delivered cryptographic training sessions in the industry. He's the author of the soon-to-be-published Real World Cryptography book. In this episode, we discuss why he focused on cryptography, the evolution of blockchain, his contributions to TLS, the noise protocol framework, quantum computing, why he wrote a book on crypto, presenting and teaching cryptography, sanitizing data, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, David, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Yeah, good on you. And thanks for having me too. Oh, my pleasure. So, how are uh, how are things in your neck of the woods with COVID and and surviving all the craziness? Oh gosh, uh, I'm actually moving places, trying to to survive, uh, staying in a in a bigger houses than my little house in or my little apartment in San Francisco. So, <laughs> so always adding in more stress and fun things, I guess. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I keep it. Yeah, and so, but you know, you, you you from from what I've understood about your background history, you do you do tackle complex issues. Um, you know, for me, I've I've looked at a lot of different things in cybersecurity, but realized early on there was no way I was doing cryptography. It was just not something that I felt I was smart enough to handle, or at least had the math skills. How did you get attracted to um, cryptography? Yeah, so I mean. When you do cybersecurity, you always tend to do cryptography to some extent. Like you're 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 touching it, maybe you're not going deep in 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 there, but you have you have knowledge of it, right? Um, so I, so how did I how did I get there? I guess I was never um, I was never necessarily a security person. I I did I did my studies in mathematics and cryptography, so I got there mostly from academia, I guess. But I also had an interest in in computer science, in in security. I think from the days where um, I like I had a website and and people defaced my website, or I myself found like SQL injection in <laughs> in my websites. And I think this is where the security switch turned on uh, for me. And so so kind of um, all of these things combining together. Uh, led me into this kind of security slash cryptography uh, position, where where I guess I enjoyed both. Um, it, and it's yeah. obviously got a very strong mathematical background. I mean, is it is it something that if you don't have the mathematical background, is going to make it very difficult for people to get into? Are there areas of it that are, you know, mm-hmm. maybe more approachable? I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> 
Yeah, so not not necessarily. I, it depends where you're sitting in cryptography. So cryptography, cryptography is a vast uh, field, and you have you, you can see that as a spectrum that has a very academia slash theoretical uh, side of it. But there's also a very applied, uh, very uh, real world, as I call it, side. And so if you're more on that side, you you don't necessarily have to do a lot of mathematics. Um, so it's it's actually it's it's actually common to see security people getting into cryptography more and more um, and learning things and, and diving deeper without having a formal mathematic education and, or background. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's okay. Like there's a lot of things you can do without deep math or anything like that. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the you know, encryption is coming up more and more as an important part as we look to more decentralized zero trust environments it's got to carry some part of authentication and security around those those procedures so it's something that you know i think it's always been in, in, in my mind, and I think a lot of people, it's like, well, we have to set up these very complex PKI infrastructures and, and ways to mm -hmm. manage all this cryptography. And it became a bit of a bear and, hard, and, and harder to manage. But I've seen it kind of evolve and come a little bit easier. Has that been your take as well, where you know, the implementation and management of cryptographic mm -hmm. channels has become somewhat easier for organizations? Yeah, I heard someone saying key management is the harder, the harder problem. In, in cryptography slash security. Um, and I, I guess I can agree with that. Like we understand how to use cryptography and how to use AES or encryption or or like TLS and all these these things. In in most use case, we have them. But where do we store keys? How do we how do we rotate keys? How do we deal with a key that is compromised? Uh, and so you want to have PKIs, you want to have revocation. Um, and you end up like in this crazy like if you look at the internet, it, it's even more than just a PKI. It's, there's like this certificate transparency protocol that makes sure that the PKI is actually behaving correctly. And um, so, so you can get really hairy, but at the same time, it's true. Like, like we have now, like with the cloud, it's it's easier and easier to, to manage all of that. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel or you have to do that less and less. Um, so, I'd say we're we're probably getting in a better place, although it's always going to be a hard problem. Like like where do I? I mean, even as a normal user, you don't even have to work in that field. How do you even deal with passwords? Right. And that's a that's another like key management issue, right? Some some sort of key management issue. So I think it's always going to be a hard problem. But but there's a, a big market and an opportunity to to simplify and and help people. Yeah. So where, where do we th see things like, and, you know, I think obviously blockchain has become this evolution out of a lot of that and where there's um, this idea of kind of decentralized authorities and greater transparency and this ability for people to hopefully move away from, from just a single password. Um, is this a magic bullet or is it just a natural evolution mm -hmm. when it comes to cri cryptography? So I, I think it's, uh, so, so if we, Talk about blockchain, all of that kind of started with cryptocurrencies, as in money was the incentive for people to run these these uh, distributed um, protocols. But today we're finding all sorts of use cases for them that don't necessarily include money. So, so they're not cryptocurrencies, but they're basically using that technology that essentially allows you to remove a trusted third party. So, 
So we always had that problem in, in security and cryptography where we have these trusted third parties um, and they run some part of our protocol or our system and we just need to trust them. And if we cannot trust them, then everything's broken. So, so I think that's what blockchain, that's what the real technology is bringing to us. It's a way to replace that trusted third party with something a bit better. It's not perfect, but it's it's the next, I guess, evolution. And I, I'd even go further. I, I'm, I don't think blockchain is the only thing doing that. Um, in cryptography, there's another field called uh, multi-party computation, MPC. And the idea is pretty much to distribute a cryptographic computation. So actually, have you, have you, have you ever heard of that term before or you have an idea of that's a new one for me yeah i know so to translate that into something practical that we can use as real world you know practitioners imagine that you have um, something in your system that has to sign something like i don't know code signature um or like like a pki like you need you need to sign a certificate or anything like that usually you have a machine somewhere that has the key, so that's key management, right? And uses the key to sign. Or maybe to do something else, right? Maybe to decrypt or, but let's say signature. With MPC, you can actually distribute that trust and have something called a distributed key generation, where you have multiple parties generating that key together, meaning that at no point in time, the key is at one place and can be compromised. And after that, when you want to use that key, you can do the, I guess a distributed signing where M of N, if enough people sign some payload, then you can reconstruct that as a signature for the key. So let me say that in other words, basically instead of having one single key on one machine somewhere, you have many keys on many machines and to sign something, you need to to have all the machines participate together um, and at no point in time, you have one single key in one place. So it almost sounds like a natural, well, somewhat of a natural evolution from your asynchronous um, kind of crypto connections where there's a public and private key. Is that what I'm kind of hearing? It's, it's see, see that more as a, we have a single point of failure and we're distributing the trust so that we don't have that single point of failure anymore. And that's that's blockchain as well, right? Like you have... In blockchain, you don't have one participant. You don't have a centralized trusted third party. Instead, you have many participants who police each other, who make sure that every other participant is running the protocol correctly. So, so it's the same kind of like shift paradigm of removing our single point of failures, removing our trusted third parties and, and distributing the trust. I'm not sure if that makes sense. No, it does. You know, yeah. my, my question in that that that's come up is then how do you then who watches the watchman essentially? How do you know that those trusted parties could be trusted? And mm-hmm. is that distributed trust allow um, kind of a a protection in the sense that you know not 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 one let's say node in that equation could you know mutate the operation and you know spoil the the, the proverbial sauce? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. So how how did you also get involved with some of the other, you know, protocol standards, you know, when, when you look at things like TLS 1.3 that, and, and I, you know, I remember just even four or five years ago, it was such a hurdle to kind of get out and get people in, implementing. Um, but it, from, from what I'm 
from what I've understood, it wasn't an easy path to kind of get that out. How did you get involved with that framework and, and becoming involved with issuing a standard? Yeah, so, so are you saying TLS 1.3 was hard yes. to get up? Yeah. That's, so I, I think it took like 10 years or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, to, being generous and <laughs> saying it was, it, it was painful, basically. All right. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, that was, uh, so I wasn't involved there at the beginning. So I'm not sure exactly what was the history and why it took so long. Um, to be fair, TLS 1.2, so the previous version was uh, and is still considered secure today. Yeah. Um, but there were some improvements that people wanted and things were not super great. So, so it's better to be on TLS 1.3 today and, and we wanted to move to a new version. And what happened at the time is that, I don't know why, I think there, there were a number of, so there, there was a time, I think five years ago, uh, or around that, where there were new attacks on TLS, like every week or every month, and and like every year you would have like a bunch of new papers coming out, like finding new flaws in TLS or SSL. Um, and I think that attracted a lot of researchers that are not necessarily looking at I don't know, like you don't see that kind of research in IPsec or SSH, like you don't see papers every day looking at that. Um, but a lot of bugs were found in TLS, the protocol, but also in implementations. I think everybody has heard of Heartbleed um, that was found in OpenSSL and that attracted a lot of other researchers trying to find bugs and, and these kind of things. Um, and I think that interest led to more interest in the new version of the protocol. And that's why we saw so many, if you look at the list of contributors of TLS 1.3, it's actually, actually a pretty big list of academics um, and people from the industries. So that's that's pretty remarkable. And I, that's, my guess is that all of that came up with with, uh, with these uh, issues and, and kind of uh, um, buzz that was going on in the research community, uh, security community. So yeah, it, it, yeah. And to your point though, it almost, it, it, this has been a good point. So it's when we hear about, oh, you know, TLS 1.0 is broken, or this is broken or some crypto, Often, and, and when I've looked at, it, I say, "Well, wait a minute. It seems like an implementation problem. <laughs> like I don't know if the mm -hmm. underlying, you know, algorithm is broken. It's 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 the way it's being managed and implemented. Is that is that more often the case? Uh, actually, not. Like there were a lot of protocol issues. So not implementation issues, but issues that impacted all the implementations. Um, so it wasn't. And true, OpenSSL has had had so many issues that. You might feel like it's uh, it's also more on that side, but it, I would say it's both on both sides. People have realized that not only the protocol had many flaws, but also it's extremely hard to implement, and and not so many people can do it right. Um, and so, and, and I remember, so Amazon wrote S2N, which is um, rewriting a bunch of of, of uh, OpenSSL. So reusing OpenSSL, but rewriting a lot of the logic. And they thought that by cleaning all of that monstrosity, they would get rid of a bunch of bugs, which was also done by Boring SSL and LibreSSL. Um, so if you don't know the history after Heartbleed in OpenSSL, a number of forks were created. Uh, Boring SSL is the Google fork, uh, for example. Uh, and, and S2N from Amazon reintroduced another, uh, a bug um, uh, Lucky 13, it was called, 
which was an extremely hard bug to actually prevent because it was a, a bug in the protocol. Uh, and so, so th th this kind of bug keeps being um, found again and again and again by researchers because it's extremely hard to prevent it. Um, I can think of other bugs in OpenSSL also. I actually found uh, one of these bugs myself where we had a bug, which was, a, it's called Blash and Basher attack. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a clever attack on RSA encryption or, or decryption. And this bug was found again and again and again, and was fixed in libraries and found again and was fixed again. Uh, and you realize at some point that it's really hard to fix and, and people try and fix it, but they, they miss something or they reintroduce the bug um, and you end up in a place where it's just like better to, to just get rid of all these like flows of previous versions of TLS and try and just support the, the new version of TLS. Um, so, so yeah, the, the protocol, bottom line is the protocol is so hard to implement correctly that people keep making mistakes. It is part of that to support uh, like backward compatibility. I mean, where, where, where in the implementation mm. part does that really not work? <laughs> so so there's, um, there's different versions of TLS and you might have legacy clients or legacy servers. And for that reason, you need to support different versions. And you have this, uh, what we call downgrade attacks, where mm -hmm. the client support different versions and the server support the latest versions as well. But someone goes in the middle and make the client use, make both of the endpoints use a lower version, or maybe make forces the server or the client to use a lower version. Um, so these were attacks that happen. Um, there are attacks in the complexity due to uh, TLS being complicated just because of legacy reasons. So um, uh, what I mean by that is that when, for example, TLS 1.3 was conceived, we realized that if we changed the way the packets or the messages looked too much, then we'd have issues uh, because we had these middle boxes and routers and, and, and all these, uh, these machineries on the internet that would actually sort of analyze the messages. And if they saw something different, they would, they would crash or they would, they would prevent the messages from being passed around. Um, mostly because they were not very flexible. So because of like all these, uh, these hardware and, and the software that was, uh, that was installed all over the place, we were like stuck in the past and we couldn't modify messages too much. So if you look at TLS 1.3 today, it looks like TLS 1.2 and there's a bunch of hacks that make it TLS 1.3, but, the, but it, it's, it's, it's quite ugly. Um, so, so yeah, first thing is, um, first thing is that it, it's hard to implement because you have all these different versions and you have to remain compatible. Second thing is that because of all these different versions and because that protocol was, was introduced a very long time ago, you have this, what we call ossification, uh, where you can't change the protocol too much. And so you're, you're kind of stuck in the past because of that. And third thing is just that TLS addresses many, many use cases. And so you have to you have this runtime complexity, which is that when you do a, a handshake with TLS, you, you do all sorts of things. All sorts of things are possible. Uh, so you don't really know where a handshake is going to lead you to because, um, because you, you have different ways to do a handshake, many different ways. And also, I don't know, I can think of so many reasons like cipher suits, like you have everybody wanted 
their own algorithms to be in the protocol. Right. So, so you have different ways to configure um, OpenSSL, uh, uh, sorry, TLS. And so different implementations will implement different algorithms. Uh, and th th there's so many layers of complexity, pretty much. Yeah, I always um, encourage people to just go to, uh, you know, Qualys has their, their SSL checker. And just, like, just you know, uh, throw your public IP on there for whatever web server you have. And look at the amount of <laughs> cipher suites and everything mm -hmm. else and backwards compatibility. It's, there's a lot that goes in that that split-second connection. <laughs> it's uh, it's almost ripe for error. And it's hard to read, right? Like, you get these reports from, from different tools, and, and you try to understand them. And sometimes it's almost like you need a PhD to to be able to figure out. Okay, is that bad? Should I disable this thing? Like, what what am I supposed to do? Or, so, what uh, led you yeah. to to start developing the uh, the noise noise protocol framework? That's that seems like kind of an interesting way to build new crypto protocols. How did that uh, kind of come about? Yeah. So, so noise protocol framework uh, was invented by Trevor Perrin uh, a, a long time ago. But I, I took a lot of time to to implement the protocol or contribute to the protocol, uh, and even extend the protocol. And what what noise protocol framework provides is pretty much an alternative to protocols like TLS um, or SSH or um, pretty much protocols that encrypt and authenticate your communications. Um, and the beauty of of noise is that it's not really it's not really an ad hoc protocol. Like you, you wouldn't just take noise and drop it in your applications the same way you do it with TLS or SSH or, or other protocols um, because it doesn't really try to address use cases, but instead it's a framework. Uh, and so what it means is that it, it has many different options, many different ways of being instantiated. And so you have to kind of design or you're designing your protocol using these different parts, kind of like a, I don't know, like Lego. And once you do that, then you have something like TLS or you have something like SSH or something like that. So it's it's one step before uh, protocols like TLS, if that makes sense. And so you can use you can use that uh, if you know what you're doing. You can use that in your application to to do something much more secure than than TLS, uh, something much simpler than TLS and possi possibly something much more useful to your, your own use case. Um, and so that's, that's what attracted me to, to noise. Uh, today, noise is used by you know, millions of people uh, through either WhatsApp or Slack or different applications that, that make use of, of noise, but it's still not uh, the prevalent algorithm. TLS is still up there. Um, and, and I believe not, Everybody knows about noise, so so there's still a long way to go. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I'm new to it as well, and um, you know it, it's it's interesting, particularly as you see more, you know, more things around where we're going to need basically greater adoption of things for different types of crypto um, suites and different things, particularly around microservices, and as we start looking at more, quite frankly, just more of a web-based world. I mean, we know we've been going for it, going towards it for 25 plus years. But you know, there's more and more people I talk to that are really driving their business through a set of web applications, um, and those have to be secure. And the data going in has to be secure and immutable. So it's, yep. it seems to be that, that that 
could be a driving factor. So where, where would it fall into the stack of that with things like API security and, and um, you know, microservices? Does it have applications in there? Yeah, so if you think about that, uh, you need to, to authenticate and encrypt uh, communications between your microservices or between pretty much anytime you have this client and server, um, client and server uh, setting. That's where you might want to use something like TLS or, or like one of these protocols, right? And so noise is, is, I believe, today the right answer. Unless you're a browser and a web server and you have to deal with like, I don't know how many web clients um, from different countries and different that support different versions of TLS and, and all of that. Uh, unless you're in this model, web client, uh, a web browser, web server, I think you should use noise. That's, that's what I would recommend because that's just a, a simpler path. Um, yeah, and, and not, not even just, so I mean, we use it for, for Libra, the, the cryptocurrency, uh, to authenticate uh, and encrypt connections between peers. So it's peer-to-peer, it's -peer, not, it's not really a client-server uh, model, and it works as well. So uh, it's very versatile, it's very versatile. So with things like other types of technology that are, that are coming out there, you know, we hear, you know, more about quantum computing. There seems to be something in the news, at least on the, once a week. I still think it's not <laughs> fully understood by people really what that means. But it seems, you know, in my mind, I immediately start going to cryptography and things like that, where you can do it at such, a, you know, scales that we've never seen before to do types of mm -hmm. mathematical computations. Where, where is, you know, where's quantum computing going to lie with cryptography and really, you know, security and IT in general? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting, right? Because depending what you read or who you talk to, uh, different people might tell you that quantum computers are going to become a thing in, in five years or or maybe they're never going to happen. Uh, so it's extremely hard to to understand uh, exactly what, what we're against. It, especially we're not physicists, right? Um, it's like in security or in cryptography uh, or in different fields, we like to talk about uh, quantum computers. But unless we're a physicist and we're working in the field, it's really hard to understand uh, what's what's happening? So, so quant quantum computers, yeah, the, the, it's like this new ID um, for computing that doesn't use the you know the the binary uh, zero and one, and instead have this um, have these these particles that are in, in superposition between zero and one, let's say, and so you have you can have different state at the same point in time, and that allows you to do some computations, not all computations, but some computations more efficiently. And so whole field of research, which dates from way before quantum computers were a thing, um, I mean, implemented, right? Way before we had quantum computers because we had some, we have some today, uh, very small ones, but we have them. And so there was a field of trying to invent alg algorithms that would compute things faster if you had this, um, hypothetical quantum computers. So today we have these quantum computers, uh, but they're, they're, they don't really scale. They, they have a lot of issues. They take a lot of space. They have a lot of errors. Um, and it's kind of reminiscent to the start of normal computers, right? But we don't know if we're gonna manage to scale them to something that can really be uh, useful. If we do scale them to something that can be useful, which might happen, you know, uh, while we're alive or not. 
then cryptography is in, in, in this sort of uh, big danger because a lot of the, what we call public key cryptography that we have today. So think of signature and key exchange um, and asymmetric encryption and things like that are going to get broken pretty much. So think of the, the web PKI. So, so certificates like the HTTPS is, will be broken. Think of uh, cryptocurrencies will be broken. People will be able to forge um, your, 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 your signature over transactions. Uh, I mean, the banking world probably will be broken. There's a lot of things that, that are going to get broke, broken uh, if quantum computers become a thing. So that's, that's kind of a, yeah. Yeah, and it could happen very fast that these things could, in theory, come online. It's, I don't think people appreciate how we were talking microseconds when they can crack, you know, uh, <laughs> the highest level of encryptions in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's the worry today. That's why we have uh, the NIST organizing this, this competition. That's why we had um, the, the NSA actually saying that uh, they're thinking about the transition to a, a post-quantum world. Um, there's a risk, right? And, and I mean, I'm, I'm not into politics or anything or, or geography, uh, uh, politics uh, in the world, I mean. But countries still consider themselves to be at war, I, I believe. And so we don't really know what other countries are doing and how far along they're, they're in their research of a quantum computer. Um, so that might be worrisome also. Um, so, so something to, to consider, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And one of the other things you're working on too is, is a book. Um, so why are you writing a book on cryptography? Yeah, so, so these days, or I mean, the, these years, um, I've been working for that uh, for almost two years for, for a book called uh, Real World Cryptography. Um, and the idea was that I wanted to write a book for myself. So, so I'm, I'm the audience. I always felt like there was a book missing for people like me who got into the real world uh, of cryptography, meaning the very applied world of cryptography, the cryptography that is used um, by large companies and by all the stuff that you're using every day, like when, when you're browsing the web or using your credit card or, or using your phone, etc. And so I always felt like there was a book missing. That's where I got into after studying um, uh, security and cryptography and, and all of these things. And it was kind of natural for me. That's something I've always thought about. Um, and, and finally, when a publisher came to me and, and asked me if I wanted to write a book, it was, it was very natural for me to, to say yes and to, to kind of know already where uh, I wanted to be. So, so pretty much real-world cryptography is this kind of book that if you're a developer, if you're a consultant, if you're working on a product that involves cryptography, or if you're a student and you want to get into that field uh, instead of academia and, and, and instead of becoming a researcher, although that can be useful as well if you, if you want to do more applied research, uh, that's pretty much the book that I would recommend you to read. Although I'm biased, but <laughs> that's the book I wanted to, to write. It, I mean, as as I, I said early on, you know, I tend to be a, a lay person when it comes to crypto. It's, it's something approachable that's going to help me understand it better because I know where the importance is. I, I get enough of it, can't get into depth. But I mean, is it is it is that the audience, or is it really people that are going to be deeper into crypto? Yeah, you, you're my audience, so you you should read the book. You should tell me if, if you don't understand something, or if you think uh, 
something is too hairy or too theoretical and, and I'll go and fix it. <laughs> that's well, uh, I, that's I, perfect I, for you. Yeah, I, I love getting outside my comfort zone and doing things. Uh, that I, you know, I don't fully understand. I'm always attracted to those things. But if I don't get it, I have to dig in further. Um, but you've also presented on this in a number, a number of you know, forums, or whether it be DEFCON and, and other things. How, how do you make it digestible? What are some of the things that you do to make it, when you are presenting this, which could be very complicated material, more understandable to the quote-unquote layperson? Yeah, so... So I'd say I've always been interested in education. Uh, ever since I was, I think, in school, uh, learning about these things, I always felt like, so, so you know, like you, you, sometimes you, you get into a concept like AS, ASGCM or something like that, encryption. Um, and you're like, how does that work? And what's in front of you is, is like a bunch of papers and, and some, some hard to read resources, but you can also go on YouTube and write AES-GCM or AES or encryption or, or hash function and try to find something that teaches you um, and, and is actually understandable, understandable for your level of, uh, of comprehension. And so that's kind of how I started. I was in school and I couldn't understand at the time um, uh, differential, differential power analysis, which is using the power consumed by a device to extract a key from the device. I couldn't understand that and I had to read that paper. And my, my natural reaction at the time was just to YouTube it or Google it. And I couldn't find good resources. So I made a YouTube video um, explaining that in a way that would have helped me um, if I could you know, like send that to me in the past. And I think that's how it started. And I started making more of these videos. So today you can go on my YouTube channel and, and kind of see um, how I explain TLS or AES or attacks on AES and different things like that. And I really experimented with that. And after that, I so I started blogging. So I was experimenting in explaining things via, via uh, writing. After that, I got into um, via my job. I was giving a cryptography training at Black Hat, um, a recurrent uh, cryptography training. So I had to find ways to, to make my students understand these things. Uh, which were mostly consultants and developers and managers and uh, not necessarily um, academic people. And so I, I really honed, that, I guess, that skill of how do I explain these, these things that are really important for people to understand um, if you want to build cryptography or attack cryptography or, or audit an application and how I do, how I do that in the most um, intuitive way possible, uh, giving intuitions, uh, interactive way possible or um, pedagogical way, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, it, um, you know, it's, it's always encouraging when people take these complex subjects and kind of say, okay, we can make this approachable because it, it has to be, because if people feel it's too complicated that to your point, they're just not going to even bother trying to like learn about or implement it. You need to have say, oh, okay, I see the value in this. Um, so I think that's, that's incredibly helpful. In in with what, you know, what what does the future look like? I mean, what are some of the things that you'll be working on that um, are either going to be new crypto standards or different things mm -hmm. that you're kind of uh, you know, working towards a future state on? So there's so many things going on <laughs> that it's hard to answer. 
the obvious ones are, you know, cryptocurrencies is, is, is booming, I'd say. Um, we were talking about quantum computers. So there's the field of post-quantum crypto, which is cryptography that we stand uh, quantum computers. Uh, so that's that's a new field of research. And basically, if, if quantum computers come and break the cryptography that we use today, um, in theory, we'll have these algorithms that are being researched uh, today to replace our our current algorithms and and defend against these quantum computers. Um, so that that is sort of booming as well. Um, there's there's zero knowledge proofs, which are which are booming. Uh, so if you've heard of Zcash, the cryptocurrency. Uh, Zcash is, is a cryptocurrency that allows you to send money to, to other peers. But what everyone sees is, is uh, pretty much when they see a transaction happening in Zcash, uh, they don't see who is sending the money. They don't see to who the money is going to, and they don't see the amount. And this is possible thanks to these zero knowledge proofs, which are proofs that um, a program executed correctly in some sense, um, but without giving you some of the inputs or some of the outputs. Uh, and this, this field is sort of booming. Um, zero knowledge proofs don't really, have, they, they've been a field in cryptography for a very long time, uh, but they've never really found a lot of use cases. Um, so, so, so actually, do, do you know zero knowledge proofs? No, no. I mean, I, I I want to tell you that you know zero knowledge proofs. If you know what a signature is, a signature is a zero knowledge proof um, that you know some private key, but you're not giving me that private key. And so a signature is a zero knowledge proof that you, you know something, a private key. And that zero knowledge proof also includes a message. You, you always sign a message. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's part of a signature, but, but essentially a signature, what it is, it's, it's a zero knowledge proof. So everybody uses zero knowledge proofs without knowing it mm. or have heard of zero knowledge proofs. Uh, but zero knowledge proofs can be way more generic. Right. And today, <laughs> this field is, is sort of booming where um, I think the, the more intuitive explanation is run a program, any program. Your program has some inputs and some outputs. And imagine, and, and so you have the transcript of your program execution where you have these inputs, you give it to your program and you have these outputs. And what zero knowledge proofs allows you to do is to remove some of these outputs and remove some of these inputs. And so what I give you is, I just give you some of the inputs and some of the outputs, the public one, not the secret ones that you removed. And you know that there exists some secret inputs and outputs that would complete these transcripts of the program that was executed. Does that sort of make sense? It I can does. give you an example. Yeah, we'll jump for free. Yeah, no, an example would be great. All right, so you, the usual example is a Sudoku. Imagine that you're giving a Sudoku and you have a program that solves the Sudoku. Or, or, or sorry, a program that verifies a solution for a Sudoku. Mm -hmm. So what does that program take? Question for you. So it's going to have to... Well, it would have to run through the scenario to come up with the answer. So knowing... I meant more like, so, so you have a program that verifies a solution for Sudoku, but what are the inputs of that program? Not necessarily, let's say that program is a black box, but what, what are the inputs? Sure, it would just be numbers. Uh, well, that's, that's more low level. Sure. At a high level, the inputs would be 
a Sudoku problem, mm. right? And a, a solution. So you give to your program a Sudoku a problem, right? Like the, the squares with some, some numbers missing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I guess when you say numbers, that would be the solution also. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Just some input in is like you need to fill it out, you know. And there's right. only there's there's one answer. But yeah, you have to go through the the process to solve it. But at the end of the day, just want to know whether it's solved or not. Right. So so let's just imagine that part as a black box, your program, and you give it a problem, a suitable problem, you give it a solution, and what it gives you is is what? It's true or false, right? True if the solution indeed solved the Sudoku. False if the solution doesn't solve the Sudoku. So what you can do is a zero-knowledge proof is you can remove some of the inputs or some of the outputs. What here, here, what would be interesting to remove is the solution itself. So what I can give you is I can give you the, uh, what, what you do as the verifier of the proof, you have the problem, the Sudoku problem. You have the, so, the result of the execution, which is true, but you don't have the solution. And I give you a proof that I know the solution because you 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 have this proof that the, the execution of that program was correct. It indeed gave true at the end, and it took as input the, the problem that you gave me, but you cannot see this, what the solution is. You just know that I correctly executed that program and that my solution is correct. That's kind of the intuition um, yeah, because of what a zero-knowledge proof is. Yeah, and I think that that has, I, I can see a lot of applications for that in, in areas where, again, you have to have some validation, but with that carries sometimes too much of the secret information. And that can be things like PII, mm -hmm. credit card transactions. Just, you know, it's just like, I don't need to know all that. Why are you sending this in the transaction? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. For privacy, it's, it's a very interesting field. That's one of the, the I think, interesting. Um, and it's, it's become more and more interesting because it's also become more and more practical. There's been a lot of advances uh, in, in these uh, previous years. So, yeah, uh, keep an eye uh, for, for these as they might uh, make their way in more and more applications around you. Well, that's awesome, David. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you online? Um, yeah, so I'd say the best place to find me, if you want to, to find my Twitter or, or uh, you know, YouTube channel or all these things that I create, is to check my blog. Uh, my blog is cryptology.net, except that it's the French spelling because i'm french <laughs> uh, but don't worry the blog is in, in english and cryptology is spelled um, so c-r-i-y-p-t-o-l-o-g-i-e so instead of y at the end it's i-e -E. so it's the french spelling dot net great i'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well as links to the book and other mm -hmm. other twitter handles and things they can find on you it's been a fascinating conversation i really appreciate you taking the time today Cool. And thanks for having me again. That was, that was fun. Thanks, David. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.